Hello, Jen. Hello, Pete. Well, I had so much fun, so much fun interviewing you, and I wish we had six hours as opposed to the 45-minute constraint (laughs) that we set on ourselves. And I find myself a little bit nervous now as I realize the tables must be turned. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, today it's my turn to interview you in celebration of our three-year podcast anniversary. This is the long and the short of it. Okay, Peter Shepard, are you ready to be interviewed by me? You and I have been lucky to be interviewed on quite a few different podcasts, and I don't think I've ever been as nervous as I am to be interviewed on our (laughs) own. How funny. Okay, so I feel like I know the last four years of your life pretty well, Mm -hmm. but I want to go all the way back to the early days. Can you just first... Tell me the makeup of your family. I feel like you've kind of mentioned that there is at least one sibling. I think there might be two, but can you just describe your family? Most definitely. This is such a meta experience for me because I'm actually in my childhood home (laughs) as we speak. (laughs) So I am the youngest of three. I have an older brother who is the oldest of the family by the name of Matt. He is, I think, six years my senior. And then my sister is the middle child, Kate, who would be three years my senior. And so I'm the youngest of three. And that is the makeup of our family. Are your parents still married to each other? They are. My parents are, in many ways, my heroes (laughs) for many, many, many reasons. One of which is they still continue to this day to have a very happy healthy relationship and marriage. So, they are still together and they're currently caravanning around Australia. Ah, that's amazing. Right. Okay. So, call back to last week. Mm -hmm. Are you a textbook youngest child or how does being the youngest child inform you? (laughs) I think I'm a textbook youngest child in the sense that I got it a lot easier than my... (laughs) Than my older mm. siblings. <laughs> and I feel like they would definitely attest to this. And I know many other younger siblings that would also attest to this where it's kind of like, I can imagine it now being a little bit older. By the time you have your third kid, your parents are kind of like, you know what? He'll figure it out. <laughs> and so, like, we don't need to be as strict. We don't need to be as paranoid. We don't need to have as many rules and regulations <laughs> for how he, you know, grows up. So, I, I was lucky to... I think I probably got away with a little bit more. Like I remember as a really young kid seeing my sister have like quite hysterical arguments with my family because they would want to call, you know, the mother of the girl whose party was having on a Saturday night and they wanted to check in with the parents to make sure it was all kosher. (laughs) Like that never happened to me. I just didn't get that. So if I wanted to, you know, go around to a friend's house on a Saturday night, mom and dad would be like, all right, see you tomorrow (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) So I guess I was textbook in that sense. I was very lucky. I was very, very, very lucky. Are you still close with your siblings? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I would say very close with both. My brother lives on the other side of the country now, so he's in Western Mm. Australia. And my sister lives 15 minutes from where we grew up, which is about 90 minutes-ish from where I live in Melbourne. And we are very, very close. We text quite a lot. We call each other maybe every couple of weeks, you know, when it's a non-COVID year or life. We have family gatherings and Christmases. It's funny. I'm- 
so lucky and privileged to have had such a harmonious, happy, healthy family. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was super lucky to be surrounded by my closest, closest friends growing up were the same. Happy, healthy, mm-hmm. quite large families with parents that are still together and siblings that are about the same age as me and my siblings. We were kind of, you know, you were talking last week about being in a bit of a homogenous bubble. The homogenous bubble I was in was like everyone is in a really lucky, happy, healthy family. And for the longest mm. time, I just assumed that that's what everyone's experience was. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I have heard you say in the past to me directly mm-hmm. that you never thought you would grow up to become a leadership coach. That wasn't like your childhood dream. It was like, I'm going to coach CEOs right across the globe. Right. What were your childhood dreams? What did you want to be when you grew up? Whew. So I had a few. One was the, well, in Australia, for a young male in the part of Australia that I'm in, you would say a fairly stereotypical childhood dream, which was you know to be a professional football player, to mm-hmm. be an AFL player was sort of the childhood dream, but very quickly I realized, okay, that's not really a reality. But it was kind of the, I want to be a footy player kind of vibe, which, yeah, again, didn't last that long. Strangely enough, I suspect it was because my mum got me into John Grisham novels at quite a young age, and I absolutely devoured John Grisham novels. There was a fairly large period of time where I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. (laughs) I'm going to, like, you know, be one of those people who – I feel like in a lot of the John Grisham novels, there's this charismatic lawyer who holds court, you know, and like is really good at crafting stories and arguments in a courtroom to defend people who should be defended and fight for justice and all of that. So I suspect in some way that rubbed off on me. And I thought for the longest time, I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer. Mm. Okay. So building on this, you just described what you think a lawyer does. What was the appeal of a football player? What does a football player do? They ultimately get paid to play a game and stay fit and healthy. And I think that maybe if I'm really like peel back the onion, I guess there was an appeal in the sense that they were, like if I'm really go back to (laughs) my ego, probably that they were liked and respected and public figures in a way and revered. Mm. And I guess subconsciously or consciously, I, for some reason, valued that. And I just, I think I was, you know, a product of my environment. All kids my age, every all my friends was basically we all wanted some version of that same thing. It was more or less a pipe dream of like, how awesome would it be to be able to just get paid to play sport? Like we already do it. <laughs> we already spend yeah. hours training. We already spend not as much as they do, obviously, but we already love it. How cool would it be to just get paid to do that thing that you love? How funny, because I've actually heard you use a similar phrase now to describe your (laughs) leadership coaching, which is how cool to get paid to do a thing that I love so much. Isn't that true? Yeah. 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 Wow. That's wild. Yeah. That motivating factor. And I think if I really like trail it through, I lost it for a while, Mm. which is probably why I had the desire to get it back. Again, probably Mm. unconsciously, but I knew, you know, we've talked before about being in a corporate or being in a startup where I was like, this doesn't quite feel like it. Mm-hmm. I feel a little bit held back. Hmm. Okay, since you're going to go there, let's double click on that for a second. Okay. I know that feeling wasn't just for one day, oh, but yeah. the decision to leave takes one day. Like, I mean, to actually activate telling the boss, 
that mm. you're putting in your notice. Mm. So can you just talk about like the period between feeling the dissatisfaction and then actually doing something about it? And what actually gave you the fire to do something about it? Yeah. So the feeling was years. Mm. Like it lasted years. Some of it was because I was not accepting responsibility and I was, you know, waiting for someone to bestow a new opportunity upon me, waiting for me to be discovered without actually doing anything to be discovered, you know. Mm. I totally acknowledge that was on me and not doing anything about it. And part of it was the environment and the role as well. But it was years, years and years and years of feeling like I wasn't in the place that I wanted to be, even though, like I would say, on reflection, the opportunities I had, the work I was doing, that job that I worked in in particular was so cool and so dynamic. And I got to travel literally the world, definitely Australia, to help the clients that I got to help with. So it was like super informative and amazing. And I just had this like sense of dissatisfaction, like almost the whole time. So years. Mm. The thing, to your point, that takes, you know, one day to finally make the decision, it was a series of events. One was I took Alt MBA as a student which connected me to people around the world and gave me a sense of what might be possible and helped me realize that you are you know, the author of your own story or you are someone who can choose to be a leader and lead yourself through a different career path or whatever that looks like. So I had that like aha in the back of my head, but I still went back and worked. And then what happened actually, I wrote an article about my experience in Alt-MBA. I posted it on Twitter, I guess, because I was using Twitter back in the day. <laughs> and someone reached out to me and said, read your article on Twitter, I'm starting a new company, would be in the you know online education technology space, ed tech, and would love to have a call about it. I spoke to this guy, Riley Batchelor, and I'm still in contact with him. And he basically said, I want you to be my first employee of this company that I'm starting. Are you up for it? And so that was the, I guess it was the excuse or the kick up the pants I needed to actually decide that moving was something I was going to do. And so it was, that, it was really that mm. moment. So it was that an opportunity was presented. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I liked the idea of, you know, I was very interested in startups and, you know, starting your own business or like being part of an early stage startup. I was super nerdy about all of that. And, you know, this was someone who set up General Assembly, the online education company in Australia. So he had a track record of building really great startups and great teams. And he was interested in my perspective and me being the person to lead it. So I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. So yeah, there was some sort of soft landing. However, you know, there's the whole reality, which is, you know, like you halve your salary overnight, you work <laughs> yeah. far more hours, you like there's, there's a whole different world to it. But I guess it was the opportunity that I needed or wanted to give me the goal to leave. Mm. Okay. I'm making a major pivot to a Please. different topic. We've only been in person together a couple times. <laughs> right. But I'll tell you something that I noticed. When you walk down the street, people look at you because you're really tall. <laughs> I don't have that problem. Um, what is it like to live so conspicuously all the time? What a fascinating question. I feel like it's a paradox in the sense that some days, often actually, I don't think of myself as, well, firstly, I don't think of myself as tall sometimes, which I know sounds weird. I guess I forget or I'm not aware of it a lot of the time. I just sort of think that I'm blending in with everyone else walking down the street. Oh, interesting. A lot of the time. And at the same time, every now and then if I see someone else really tall, I think, whoa, that person really stands out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think to myself, that must be you too. 
it's usually an external trigger will remind me. So something like that, or it's like this happens. I mean, when we weren't in lockdown all the time, I would say daily, someone would either say to me directly, wow, you're so tall, or what's the weather like up there? Or like, how tall are you? Or you would hear them like say it to their friend on the street. Oh my God, look how tall that guy is. (laughs) Yeah. So I was aware of it because of external inputs, but I definitely like hearing you say that makes me feel funny because I'm like, I don't walk down the street thinking everyone's looking at me at all. (laughs) Yeah. That's probably a good thing. Which is probably probably a good good thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I'd love to talk for a second about mentors and heroes, mm-hmm, which I, mm-hmm. I think are two different things. Although sometimes a hero can become your mentor and your mentor can become your hero. Mm-hmm. But who are some of your childhood heroes and who are some of your childhood, meaning pre-18 mentors? Okay. Good question. I think childhood heroes, I want to say most of them were probably sports related. You know, a really great football player or a really great, like, I can't even, there's not even a name that comes to mind of like, that person is my hero. In fact, actually, as I say that, one of Australia's best cricketers was a guy by the name of Ricky Ponting. He was a captain and very, very, very successful cricketer. And I remember having like his poster on the wall and thinking, Mm -hmm. wow, Ricky Ponting's pretty great. (laughs) Kind of based on nothing other than his skill at that particular endeavor, sport. He was really, really good at cricket. And I guess for a while, I thought that's something to aspire to. It wasn't, I guess, a hero in the sense of what I think about now, which is, you know, people whose work or whose books or whose ideas have really influenced me. It was more, Mm -hmm. and maybe this is because of the world we lived in back then versus the world we live in now, where we have more exposure and insight into who these people are. It was more like, he's really good at that thing. And I really love that. So, someone like Ricky Ponting, I would say, would be a hero. Mentors, I really like as a question or a reflection And again, I'm like, there's probably a couple of particular teachers that really come to mind. One was a guy by the name of Jeff Ryan, who was kind of like the coordinator of what we have as year 11 and 12, which is kind of like senior high school. Mm -hmm. He was kind of like the coordinator, I guess. And he was incredibly down to earth, very, very relaxed. He was the teacher that everybody loved like because he was just, you know, he'd fit in. He wasn't strict. He was just like happy to have a chat. And there were just a few, I just remember a few moments that he encouraged me to apply for certain universities. He encouraged me to apply for this scholarship at the University of Melbourne, which at the time was considered, you know, one of the great universities in Australia, if not the most prestigious in Australia. I don't know if that's still the case now, but so he helped me, I guess, realize that was a possibility and encouraged me to Mm -hmm. go for it. He opened doors and he turned on lights for me in a way that not all teachers did. And then I would say, Honestly, my mum and my dad Mm. were both heroes and mentors in the way that they, a bit like the stories you were sharing last week, they didn't tell me or push me in any certain direction. In fact, I distinctly remember sitting down with them at the dinner table and them saying, okay, what subjects do you want to study? Mm. And and what would that look like? And we we had like basically a conversation about what subjects I might want to study and how that might influence where I go to study at university and all those sorts of things. So, there was never that push of you have to do this, you have to be this, you have to try this, don't do that. It was always a conversation, which I think as someone who now thinks about mentorship a lot or coaching even a lot, I think of that conversation as being quite informative. Can you tell us about a time when you were really disappointed by something? Wow, I feel this like <laughs> this drop in my stomach already. I know the, I know the story. We have year 12 where you get what we call an enter score, 
which I can't think of the equivalent in America, but it's the score you get, like the end of high school, you get a score, which you then try and get into universities with. Is it like your GPA? Probably like an SAT. SAT. Oh, we take a test called the SAT and then you have your GPA. Right. Okay. So Grade point average. The SAT equivalent. So you study all year for this, you know, Mm -hmm. you got your subjects, you're studying. I was so unbelievably diligent that I actually am surprised. Like I think about it now and I'm like, wow, that was incredible how dedicated I was to my study in year 12. And the short version of the story is I got my score. I was awarded the ducks of the school, which is the highest score that the school had got that year. And I was unbelievably disappointed mm. because Say more. it wasn't high enough was the story. Mm. It was so interesting. Because the whole year 12, you know, like there were subjects where I literally didn't lose a mark. Like I was 100% in, I think like three of my four subjects or four of my five subjects did not lose a mark. And I would do practice exam after practice exam after practice exam. My mum's friend was a actually a qualified like marker of the exams and I would get her to mark them and I would get her to give me feedback. And I did countless practice exams where I literally didn't lose a mark. And she'd be like, you got 100%. And so, in my head, I was like, I'm going to get like 100% on some of these exams. And I didn't. And so, when I got the score, I remember being such a weird thing to think about now. I was like a little bit crushed. (laughs) Hmm. And yet, it was still enough to get me where I wanted to go. And it was still enough to be ducks and like, what a great honor. But I distinctly remember being, and even now, like I think about it and I still get a little bit like hung up on it. Oh, I am fascinated by this story. Okay. The reason I wanted to ask you this, so now we're going to have to dig around in here, is as a freelance coach, speaker, facilitator, you send a lot of proposals out into the world and some of them cross the finish line and some of them don't. And that's just sort of the nature of the business. And I've witnessed you in the lead up, you know, the anticipation of is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? But then if something doesn't happen, I haven't really seen you like, fall into the rut of disappointment. So the Mm. reason I wanted to ask you that question was I wanted to know about your relationship to disappointment. But this story like, is confounding to me. It defies all of my expectations about what you were going to say. So can you just dig in a little bit? Like, What did you learn from that? And how is it possible that you are so different now? Mm. I think on reflection, I I was so good at playing the game. Like school is a game. You study for the test to get the A, to get that, like, for me, it was like that little validation that, oh, you're smart and you got an A. I guess I became somewhat obsessed with that game of, like, I know how to play this game. I know how to get the A. I've done the work. And that should translate. And it just didn't quite translate into what my expectation was. I think to fast forward, like, right to your point around proposals, it's so weird. I've been thinking about this pattern of, like, looking for the game and being really good at the game. And I I see it manifest in all sorts of ways now. And I think that because of the work that I did as someone in a startup that was then a corporate, which I spent seven years at this one particular company, which I think I was in eight different roles across seven years. And there was a lot, a lot, a lot of account management, proposals, creation, looking for new business, having conversations with prospective clients and existing clients. And I think I, through repetition and through experience, I guess I realized the game in that sense is sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. Sometimes people reply to you, sometimes Mm -hmm. they don't. Sometimes you win an awesome deal and everyone high fives and celebrates. And sometimes you literally just never hear from someone after putting like days of work into something. So, I guess if I was to relate it to the game, 
I recognize that that's part of the game. And so mm. now I know that to some degree that that's part of the game. I guess the other thing I would say is I don't know if I, no, I don't think I quash it when we jump on a call, but I guess when I jump on a call with you, I'm like, we're here. I show up in a certain way because I'm here to talk to Jen. I'm not necessarily here to wallow in something that I missed out on. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, moving this in a totally different direction. Actually, it's not that different because you've just set me up for a segue in that, you know, the relationship we have to each other is that we have a task to do and we get on and we do the task. Mm. Sometimes we get sidetracked by a conversation, but, you know, we tend to complete the things that we're supposed to complete. So we don't have tons of room for serendipity in our organized relationship. And so I think that there is a big part of Pete Shepard that I miss out on, mm. which is the passion part. Mm. So not related to your work. What are you passionate about? I'm just filtering out all the work things that are coming into my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Such an interesting word, passionate. I'm passionate about health and fitness for sure. And so exercising each day, swimming in the ocean each day, eating food that fuels me, that is healthy and nutritious. Like I'm quite passionate about that, a healthy and a nutritious life, I guess. I am very passionate about my family and my friends and my partner, Tracy in particular, around reminding myself, being aware of the fact that at the end of the day, they're kind of not all that matters, but like they're the people that have always been there and will continue to always be there in terms of my family and then now my partner Tracy. So, I'm very passionate about making space for that, being aware of that and trying to create and craft and structure a life in a way that supports that. I'm super passionate about travel. <laughs> Feels weird to say in COVID, but I've been, I've been so lucky. Oh. And, yeah. I've been so lucky and, you know, a little bit brazen and bold at times to travel to some pretty cool places, some pretty crazy places. And I just absolutely love it. I absolutely love that feeling of being somewhere that you've never been before, experiencing a culture you've never really experienced before and just trying to figure it out. Mm. And it's like scary and nervous and you feel homesick and then you like meet a local and like they're the nicest person ever and you just want to stay there forever. Like I love that whole experience. I'm quite passionate about that. And what else am I passionate about? I mean, related to the health and fitness thing, I, you know, I play a bit of golf with some friends when we I can. I had no idea you were a golfer. <laughs> right. No, nope, sort of know. <laughs> it replaced football. And like I used to play football every single weekend until I was about 26, probably just before you and I met. That was a community thing where you play a sport with some friends and then a bunch of us basically just started playing golf every weekend instead. So I, I, I definitely don't do it every weekend now, but that is something else that interests me. Hmm. Okay. What is the most extraordinary place you've traveled to? And can you tell me a story about what made it so extraordinary? That is such a hard question to answer. I have so, I mean, so many. Let's go with Sri Lanka for now. So I traveled to Sri Lanka a number of years ago and it was extraordinary for a few reasons, for many, many reasons. One is, I mean, you mentioned here, what's it like to notice that everyone's looking at you? Never have I been more aware of that than walking the streets of Colombo, which is the capital city of Sri Lanka, where you're a six foot seven white guy. And as far as the eye can see, there is no one else 
with your color skin. There's definitely no one else that's six foot seven. And so mm. everyone literally just like stops on the street and turns their head and looks at you, <laughs> which was a fascinating experience. So there was like things like that. And then the thing that's so extraordinary about Sri Lanka is it's actually quite small, but it's so diverse within how geographically small it is. So you go from giant city where it's chaos, inland to the jungle, only a few hours. And then when you go southeast, you can go on safaris and look for elephants on the back of a jeep. And then you go another couple of hours south and you're on like these pristine, beautiful, world-class beaches that are like very close to the Maldives, which is, you know, as most people know, like some of the most spectacular beaches in the world. So the vast array of like diversity of experience, but also diversity of environment within a matter of hours from one another. I just think it's, yeah, Sri Lanka was an extraordinary place. Yeah. Mm. Oh, travel. Someday, someday we'll do it again. I just remember like the friendliness of the Sri Lankans is best summed up by the fact that one morning in the place that I was staying at, you know, we go down and grab some breakfast and the chef said to me, what would you like for dinner? And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's breakfast time. And he's like, would you like me to catch you some fresh fish? And Mm. I was like, I mean, I love fish. I'd be happy to have some fish. And he was like, great. And he literally ran inside grabbed his fishing rod and just went like sprinting past. (laughs) And he's just like run to the rocks, threw in his rod and just started fishing for fish to catch for us just because he wanted to. (laughs) It was like ridiculous. The hospitality and the friendliness of these people is insane. Oh, and delicious. And delicious. Okay. Circling back to your childhood for a moment, when I was preparing to be interviewed by you, (laughs) I was like, trying to think about different like episodes of youth um so it helped me to prepare to ask you some questions about your youth Mm -hmm. is there a moment in your childhood that you would consider the most important moment of your childhood so two come to mind and i'm trying to work out if it's i realize they were pivotal now but i don't think i was aware of it at the time Mm mm-hmm so the first one is it's actually it was funny. I did a like a family podcast where I did an hour interview with each member of my family and me, my brother and my sister all brought up this exact same memory without doing it deliberately. We just all had that same memory. And that was that every single night at the dinner table, every single night, my dad would ask, What was the best part of your day? And we would mm. we would go around the room and you'd have to share the best part of your day. And at the time, you were like, oh, my God, Dad, get a new question. Oh, my God, are we really doing this again? We always do. You know, like you were lamenting the monotony of the same question. What I realize now is like he instilled in us an appreciation for and gratitude for any given circumstance on any given day. Mm. And I think, I mean, how many times have we talked about gratitude? How much research is there out there now about looking for the things in your life that you already have that you can be grateful for, which changes the way that you literally view the world? Like my dad helped us do that without any of us realizing it. So it was like the five-minute journal back in the day. <laughs> you know, it was, it was wow. Wild. So I recognize that and I have no doubt that that has helped shape my, I would say, optimistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. So there's that one. The other one, which is a bit random, was in grade six. So this is for us, this is the last year of what we call primary school before you go to high school. We don't have middle school. And so in grade six, you know, there was a call for who wants to be the, you know, it was like the school captain. And I want to say there was a hundred or so people in our year level. Anyway, I remember coming home from school one day and being like, mom, I think I want to try and be school captain. And my mom, in such a such an amazing way, was supportive. And she was like, great. 
I distinctly remember her sort of like trying to taper my expectations, which was great, which was like, it might not happen. So, just be aware of that. Like, let's prepare. Let's, you know, you got to write a speech or whatever, but it might not happen. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I could do it. I think I could be school captain. And I remember I like wrote a talk, you know, a little speech, like it was probably my first public speech and I did it. And the short version of the story is I was school captain. But the fact that I was school captain wasn't the important lesson. I think it was more that I had this distinct feeling of like, I'm pretty sure I can be school captain. And then I did the work to do the thing and I ended up doing the thing, which was just a cool, I don't actually remember that many moments where I've thought to myself, I could do that and then Mm -hmm. actually gone and done it. I had that moment actually when I went to a TED event later in life, I went to TEDx Melbourne and I was like, I think I could do a TEDx talk. And lo and behold, I did it. So, there were, it was like the first moment I remember distinctly where I was like, that's a stretch and I think I can do it. And I mean, as it turned out, I used to speak at assembly every single week in front of hundreds of kids, which I am sure has conditioned me to be comfortable speaking publicly. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes, of course. Okay. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, that is a hard question. The worst piece of advice I have ever received. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is at some point along the journey when I was clearly disengaged with being in the corporate world, as we sort of touched on earlier, and I was in that years of like, should I leave? Shouldn't I leave? At some point in that journey, someone said to me some version of, you just got to keep playing the game. And what they meant by that is if you suck it up, ignore the fact that you are disengaged and, you know, stick with it. Maybe one day you'll get promoted in six years' time or in five years' time. It was kind of like, suck it up, ignore what your intuition is telling you and things will work out. Or like, you know, some version of like, this is just life. You just got to suck it up and do work that you're not interested in. And I, I know the person still and we're actually friends and I still think that he was definitely trying to help. And for me in that moment, it was not the advice that I needed or wanted. It was, mm-hmm. it was the exact opposite of what I needed or wanted. I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel like he understood what I was going through. And so, I guess my generic answer would be any advice where you don't feel seen or heard or understood is probably not good advice. There's a lack of empathy. And I definitely felt it in that moment. The reason I ask is I have a working theory going on right now that mm-hmm. the worst advice produces the best advice because when you realize it was the worst advice you realize the advice that you would give. Wow. So, can you tell me, based on that story, what is the best advice you could have given Peter Shepard in that moment? Well, I think that checks out your theory. Because what I realized in that moment was, if I don't do anything differently, I'm going to stay here for 10 more years and be in the exact same position, maybe have got a promotion. And so, the (laughs) the advice... I would give myself is some version of like, trust yourself to take the leap. Boom. (laughs) That's great. What a great. Yes. Okay. So Peter Shepard, in closing, yes, I'd love for you to share with us. How would you like to be remembered? Okay. 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 I would like to be remembered as someone who, was generous in the way that they interacted with others, was always coming from a posture of service in order to try and help others to open doors, turn on lights, and to have always had time for the people and the things that matter most. Yeah, 
I feel like I could come up with 35 different words that I want to be remembered by, but I think some version of generosity. He was a generous person who helped others and always made time for the people and the things that mattered. And that is the long and the short of it. 